Welcome to Manifold. I'm very excited today to have as a guest, Professor Shai Carmi of Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Shai is a distinguished and very well-known professor of statistical genetics and computational genetics. He also is a Twitter explainer of other people's scientific papers. So I think that's not the, not the way I first became aware of Shai, but one of the ways in which he impinged heavily on my consciousness, because there's some set of people who are following the field really carefully. And when they see an interesting paper, they actually put out a Twitter thread on it or a tweet on it. And my lab has benefited uh, very much from Shai because actually all the postdocs in my lab follow Shai's Twitter feed. And uh, well, it's sad, but true. But science is now kind of being centered on Twitter these days. Shai, welcome to Manfold. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. So I would like to start with your early life and education. And I discovered, embarrassingly for me, not, not only just recently, that you also were, began your career as a physicist. And so you have uh, undergraduate degrees in physics and computer science. And then your PhD was in physics. And I think it looks like you started in some kind of uh, statistical or network kind of analysis, kind of physics. But then by the time you finish your PhD, you are already kind of getting into things like gene editing and things like this. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I studied at uh, Bar Ilan University. That's in uh, central Israel. And as an undergrad, I studied computer science and physics and a little bit of math. By the time I've, I was um, in like third year as an undergrad, I already started uh, research in a, in a computational group in the physics department there. And I worked in statistical physics towards my master's degree and uh, PhD. And the subjects that I worked on were network theory, as you, as you mentioned. We studied transport processes over networks. In other words, uh, random walks or search. Or navigation uh, over uh, random networks, and sometimes sometimes over real networks like the like, like the internet. Um, and I did that for a few years, and then I also studied diffusion equations, uh, so-called anomalous uh, diffusion theory. Um, and then uh, by about 2007, 2008, I decided that I would like to try the life sciences. I would like to learn more biology and uh, see if I can do research in that area. It really interested me. So I, um, I took some classes and I uh, started talking to some people. I also worked in a wet lab for uh, about a year doing experiments with uh, RNA, molecular genetics experiments. And then a year later, I uh, even joined a lab still at Bar-Ilan University in the life sciences, a lab that worked on RNA editing. So that's a, <laughs> that's a few years before uh, you know, CRISPR and, <laughs> and all that. Uh, we studied uh, changes that happen to the sequence of uh, RNA after uh, transcription. So I did that for about a, another year. And then I moved to the United States for my postdoc. I did my postdoc at Columbia University in New York with uh, Itzik Peer. The things that I studied there were population genetics and uh, later uh, medical genetics. And, and these are still the areas where I do research in my group at the Hebrew University. So I've been at the Hebrew University since 2015. It's about almost seven years now. And I'm at the Faculty of Medicine at the School of Public Health. 
And I started working on in population genetics. Actually, it's about uh, I spent about half my time in, in that field, developing uh, theory, methods, learning how to use genetic variation to learn about the uh, dem- demographic history of populations, about uh, mutations and recombinations, uh, about these processes. And specifically, we are interested in the in the demographic history of uh, Jewish and other Israeli populations, and also recently, recently in the context of uh, ancient DNA. And in the second half of the activities in my lab, we, we work in medical genetics, and uh, we, we have a few collaborations uh, studying uh, specific diseases. And, and then, but we also have some projects on uh, screening, preconception, carrier screening, and also pre-implantation genetic testing. And I mean, maybe I can share the story of how I got to this, um, you know, to work on <laughs> on subjects so diverse, you know, from Ashkenazi Jewish genetics to pre-implantation genetic testing, in other words, testing of embryos. So uh, in my postdoc, just about 10 years ago, we started a large sequencing project in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. So it was a consortium, about a dozen researchers from the New York area, and we sequenced uh, nearly 130 whole genomes, which at the time was was quite a lot, still quite nice. And uh, I led this uh, the analysis of this data as a, as a postdoc. We used this data to study the history of the population. For example, we studied the founder event in the history of Ashkenazi Jews. The population was very small until uh, about uh, 700 years ago, w- which led to a lot of disease mutations, for example. And uh, we also did some work in medical genetics with this data. And for example, I mean, I mean, one of the applications of this data, one of the ways this data is used is uh, for improving imputation. So uh, if we have uh, genetic uh, data coming from microarrays, which is uh, sparse and, and only has about uh, half a million or so genetic markers, we can use whole genome sequencing data to impute, to fill in all the missing variants. But by, by finding similarity between the, the genome that we are trying to, to impute, the genome that for which we have missing data, similarity between that genome and the one of the genomes that we sequenced. By the time I was about to return to Israel, someone approached me from the Sharet Tzedek Hospital in Jerusalem from the pre-implantation genetic testing lab there. And they were trying to improve the accuracy of methods for sequencing the genomes of, of embryos for, for specific disease mutations. And because many of them of their patients are have a Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, they thought that by using these um, whole genome sequences, they could improve the accuracy of genotyping of the embryos, which is difficult because of the uh, because it's a, basically a single set experiment. There is very little genetic material to work with. I started working with this person. His name is uh, David Zevi. And then we, we published a little paper about these uh, Ashkenazi reference genomes, but we also started developing methods more generally for sequencing the genomes of uh, embryos using very low coverage uh, sequencing of the, of the embryos. And uh, we published a couple papers uh, on these methods, which have uh, both an experimental and computational uh, innovations. And uh, we're, still working, we're still working together. And uh, by the time I became, by becoming, I became more knowledgeable in uh, how PGT works and uh, what are the challenges in sequencing embryos and you know, just just the whole procedure of how um, PGT works. I also learned about all the developments in the genetics of complex traits and diseases. I thought that you know, now that we have we have whole genomes available for the embryos, which actually surprised me. It's, you know, we could 
achieve very accurate coverage of those embryos for um, basically just $100 per embryo. And then I thought, if we have all, the, all this information from the embryo, what else can we do with, with this, with this information? And, and then all those studies started to come out with uh, polygenic uh, scores for predicting traits and disease risk and so on, which led me to start thinking about screening uh, IVF embryos for uh, polygenic traits and diseases. And since then, this is when I started this uh, series of research uh, projects on this uh, subject. Great. That's a great uh, segue into the, I think we were going to discuss several of your papers uh, if we have time, but it reminds me, we, we need to make a couple disclaimers. So I'm a co-founder of two companies, Othram, which does forensic DNA analysis and another called Genomic Prediction, which does pre-implantation genetic screening of embryos. And you are in no way endorsing those companies. You are only stating your scientific opinions based on your own research. And we should not ascribe any endorsement to you for the, the work of those companies. Similarly, you are a consultant for MyHeritageDNA, which is a, I guess you could call it a consumer DNA company, which I guess is focused both on ancestry maybe and also on health risks. Right. And I guess we, we should just point that out for any conflict of interest reasons. Is right. that fair? Thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you very much for uh, pointing this out. Great. Now, I'm really interested in your paper. So you wrote a paper on the ana analyzing the gain or the utility gain from embryo selection. Risk, I guess I should say risk reduction mm -hmm. from embryo selection. And one of the phenotypes that you looked at was schizophrenia. And I have a personal connection to this because in high school, one of my close friends who was actually Ashkenazi Jewish American, okay. but we were growing up in the middle, middle of Iowa. His father was a history professor. He was a brilliant kid and he went to Princeton to study. He was a double major in biology and English, but then he had an attack of schizophrenia in his early twenties and he's never been honestly normal since he's been a actual, you know, I, I would honestly say kind of a burden to his family for his entire life because he never really recovered. And that was a very strong shock to me because intellectually, this guy was very strong, very ambitious, and he was just struck down by this disease. And uh, so I've always had a little bit of an interest in schizophrenia. I don't know that much about it, but for this personal reason, I have an interest in it. My understanding is it it affects something like half a percent, roughly. I mean, it varies from population to population, but even, even up to one percent, even one percent yeah. of the general population. Yes. So it's not a it's not a super rare condition, right. but it can be devastating, right. not just for the individual, but for their whole family, as as I understand. Right. And if you have a family history conditional on having a family history of schizophrenia, the, the individual risk for just conditional risk might be as, as high as like 10%. Mm -hmm. So in your analysis, you looked at what would happen if you could use a genetic predictor, polygenic predictor of schizophrenia risk, and you had some number of embryos, let's say, I think was the number four, one of the, one of the cases that you looked at was maybe we four embryos. We mostly looked at five embryos. Five, sorry, five. So say you pick the lowest schizophrenia risk embryo out of five, you could have a relative risk reduction. Let me define, I'll define in a minute what that is. Relative risk reduction of something like 50%. Is that, yes. is that, was that your result? Okay. Yeah. Now relative risk reduction means if the embryo, you know, if there was some preexisting risk for that family, then the reduction was 50%. So by going through this procedure, they would have 
half the amount of risk. However, the absolute reduction of risk maybe is only 1% down to 0.5% if the family doesn't have any history of the condition, the absolute risk reduction. Whereas if they had a family history, the absolute risk reduction might be much larger, like maybe from 10 to 5% or something like that. Is, is that a fair yeah. summary of your results? Yes, very much. Yeah. Would you like me to okay. expand? Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Yeah. So, um, so fortunately, I mean, I didn't have any personal encounter with this disease. The, the interest in this, specifically in this disease, comes mostly from uh, my colleague Todd Lance, uh, who is uh, working specifically in this field of uh, psychiatric genetics. But also, I tend to believe that, that psychiatric diseases uh, are probably going to be popular targets for polygenic embryo screening, either in companies like uh, like yours or elsewhere because they, they can be so uh, devastating so so to find the expected relative risk reduction so yes we assume that there are five embryos uh, available uh, and then we we use two approaches to compute the relative risk reduction and, and in both approaches we assume that the parents would sequence the genomes of all five embryos and compute the polygenic score for schizophrenia for each of those embryos. One important point is that we are assuming that the parents are considering only this uh, single polygenic risk score. They are only considering this one disease, not, not testing for multiple diseases. This is something we can talk about later. And then the parents are going to be transferring the embryo that has the lowest uh, risk score for schizophrenia. And then we use two approaches. The first is mathematical or statistical uh, model, which is called the liability threshold model. Um, which uh, states basically that, that each disease has um, so so disease is a binary trait or a binary variable. Uh, individual can be healthy or sick, but it is assumed that each uh, such disease has uh, nevertheless uh, a continuous uh, so-called liability that is unobserved. But this is something that we you know we cannot measure it. But but when the liability is very becomes very high we see the disease, the disease, uh, the person becomes uh, infected, the disease appears. This happens to be a good model for uh, fitting uh, various types of uh, genetic data. And the assumption is that this liability has a genetic component and a non-genetic or environmental component. And uh, the, the relative sizes of the genetic and the non-genetic components are dictated by the heritability. But we don't don't even know the entire genetic component. We don't know every single gene, every every single genetic risk factor for the disease. We only know the polygenic uh, risk score, which is uh, basically just the number of risk alleles that are carried by an individual based on uh, results of uh, genome-wide association studies. So, uh, so these studies they look at cases and controls. They try to find associations. They find typically hundreds of alleles that are associated with the disease, and then for for a new individual, we just count how many risk alleles we have. It's a good idea to to do a weighted average, to give a weight for each allele by the risk of carrying that allele. But these are technical details. Eventually, we assume that the liability is has the genetic com component represented by the polygenic risk score, and then uh, a residual component, which comprises all the other genetic risk factors plus environmental factors. And then... Under the re very reasonable assumption that these components are normally distributed, then we can compute the distribution of the of the polygenic score for the embryo that will be selected, and from that we can compute uh, the risk of the embryo 
to be affected by the disease as an adult. And then we can compare it to the uh, average risk in the population, and from that we can compute the relative risk reduction. That was the first approach. The second approach was to use uh, real genomes from uh, cases and controls. Um, so we cannot do an experiment. There's no data we can do. There's no data we can get from from uh, an experiment where we would actively select an embryo based on one strategy or another. So we still have to rely on some, in some to some degree, on simulation. So we so we take genomic data from cases and controls. In the in this case of schizophrenia, cases of schizophrenia and individuals unaffected with the disease. Uh, and then what we do is. We generate, we call it virtual couples. So we, we mate individuals at, at random to, to create pairs of uh, father and mother. Although they don't even have to be male and female, but we just uh, create those pairs. And then we use, I would say, standard methods from, uh, from genetics to generate, to simulate genomes of children. And then once we have the genomes of children for each such uh, virtual couple, we can compute the polygenic scores of the children and then we can compute the risk of the children to be affected based on models that were learned for the parents. So, so we use the, the parents, we use those case control genomes to learn the, what should be the risk of an individual based on the polygenic score. Uh, and then we use these models to compute the risk of each embryo and we select the, each simulated embryo. And then we do this experiment, computational experiment, where we, where we say, okay, what is going to be the risk of the embryo that has the lowest polygenic risk score for schizophrenia? And then we compare it to selecting a random embryo, you know, equivalently to the prevalence of the disease in the, in the population. And again, from that, we can compute the relative risk reduction. And what we found is that for schizophrenia, the polygenic risk scores that we have right now, they, uh, in technical terms, they explain about 7% of the liability, of the variance in liability of the disease. Uh, it's a way to quantify, to measure the predictive power of the polygenic score. Which is not not very high, but it's also not very low. It's about typical for uh, for many diseases. Most diseases diseases today have polygenic scores explaining the variance of about five to ten percent of the liability. And given this uh, parameter, and given that we have five embryos for each couple, then our estimates were that the relative risk reduction is going to be between forty and fifty percent. As you mentioned. The, this is the relative risk reduction. It's not the absolute risk reduction. So if the disease is, uh, has prevalence of 1%, this means that the absolute risk reduction is going to be only 0.5%, or, or more correctly, 0.5 percentage points. And this is something that we need to be aware of, that, that our risk reduction that may seem very large as a relative risk reduction is actually quite small on the absolute scale. And both forms of... Um, both ways of presenting the risk are correct, but I think it's it's usually better to present both to make sure patients know what to uh, what to expect. The last point that I'll mention again is you said like what happens when uh, one of the parents is uh, one or both parents are affected, and of course it increases substantially the risk of the child. So uh, as you said, I think these are about the right order of magnitude. The children of an individual with schizophrenia have probability about ten times. Uh, higher to become affected compared to random individuals, so it's about 10% prevalence. And what we showed is that the relative risk reduction is uh, still remains. I think it's it's a, if I remember correctly from the the numbers we reported, I think it's a little bit less, maybe not uh, 50%, maybe closer to 40%, but it's still quite high. 
And the important thing here is that it's also relatively high on the absolute scale. So uh, risk, re risk reduction can be four percentage points, uh, which is perhaps uh, more meaningful. I thought that these derivations or, or this mo part of the modeling that we did is quite important because this might be, these might be the first uh, use cases uh, for polygene embryo screening, uh, perhaps not in the US, but in other countries, these might be cases where parents will ask for, uh, for their embryos to be uh, screened or prioritized based on polygenic scores in case one of them is uh, affected by schizophrenia or similar diseases. Yeah, on that last point at genomic prediction, a lot of the parents coming in who request our embryo reports, they have a family history of some pretty impactful condition like breast cancer. I don't know if we've had schizophrenia yet, but uh, breast cancer and heart attack are two of the big ones where if there's a family history, then the family is aware of that. And, and if they're not carriers of BRCA or some other Mendelian variant, they, they know it's polygenic in nature, and then they, they're interested in selecting an embryo, which is lower risk. I, I wanted to ask you a technical question. So we, we did some complementary calculations where it turns out in UK Biobank and in other data sets, there are siblings. And so we were able to look at siblings who, you know, their average age is in the sixties or something. So they've already lived, you know, big chunk of their lives. And then you can ask how well do the predictors allow you to predict which of the two siblings has the condition and which one doesn't. And for more common conditions, you can easily assemble enough data to figure out, say, how well the heart attack, the, you know, CAD predictor works or uh, hypertension or whatever it is. And it's interesting because our, those are based on real people, but we get very similar results to what I think you and other groups got from more, a little more simulated kind of analysis. So that, that was quite interesting at a scientific level. I had a very technical question I wanted to ask, cause we've, we've thought about making synthetic babies, not, I mean, on the computer in silico. So the, the question I always have, and this is, this is, you know, exposing my lack of biology knowledge as a dumb physicist is when you have meiosis and you make gametes. So you make a, an egg from the mother, or you make a sperm from the father. We sort of know the chunk sizes that, you know, the gamete only gets half the half DNA of the, say, the father. Do we know much about the distribution of how those chunks are determined in meiosis? Like, I would, I would think this is something that you could actually answer this question with your data now. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah we know. We have a pretty good idea. Uh, uh, we, we have something called the genetic map, which basically for every position in the genome or for every small window of the genome, it provides the probability of having recombination crossover uh, in, in that window in each meiosis, in each uh, generation. So with these, with these genetic maps, uh, we can easily model uh, meiosis. That, that's exactly how we implemented our simulations. And th th these ideas are also uh, very commonly used when people are trying to study, for example, methods for detecting uh, relatedness. So this is like if you if I have a new method to detect uh, relatives, then I would need to simulate these relatives, and uh, this is how we, how it's done. I would have the two the two chromosomes from each parent, and then then I need to draw the positions of crossovers. And the standard assumption is that the position is is uniform uh, along the genome. It's not exactly accurate. Also, separately, I wrote a different paper about when this assumption is become 
does not exactly hold, but broadly it's fine to to make this assumption and uh, and simply then it's a Poisson process. You know, if you, if you go even more technical, and the, and the rate of the of the process is simply determined by the by the total so-called genetic map of the of the chromosome. So so this is how we we drew the chromosomes. The one uh, problem with this method is that the we don't really have the genomes of we don't really have the chromosome sequence the the haplotypes of an individual. We we can only um, infer them computationally using something called phasing, which is imperfect. So in a sense, like every like, like each of the chromosomes that we think we have for an individual is actually a mix a mixture of the two. Uh, of the two chromosomes of the of the individual, but at least over relatively short range, something like 100 kb or one megabase, we have uh, phasing is quite accurate. So I think what's important is that we get the local LD structure, we get it right in the in the children, but but otherwise the precise positions of the of the crossovers it doesn't matter that much. I see. Wait, so so as a first approximation, you can take it to be a unit, just a uniform probability at each position for. Yeah, uh, there is something called crossover interference, which means that in a, not only in humans, in many organisms, there is a, a two crossovers cannot be too close together. There's like a repulsion between a, between crossovers, and it can be modeled. But overall, it's not very important, I think, in this for, for the purposes of studying, you know, risk reduction. Yeah, I mean, if if the predictor is super polygenic. This will kind of come out in the wash, I guess. Yes. Um, the, the, the sort of basic biology question that I was ignorant of is I thought I had heard that there are quote recombination hot spots where the probability just shoots up. Yeah. Uh, and the question is whether you have to model that yeah. uh, in your. Right. Yeah. So, so we did, as I explained, like, like we have this genetic map, which is, uh, at, you know, in, in windows that are hotspots, there is higher probability. So. Maybe just to correct one thing I, I said before, we select the position of the crossover uniformly, but in genetic map y- units. Yeah, and that takes hotspots into account. Got it. Yeah, so that's a very beautiful work and extremely useful, right? Because if you can generate synthetic siblings or offspring, right, there are many uses of that. And you actually hinted at another one, which is genetic genealogy and DNA forensics, which maybe we'll, hopefully we'll ca- get to that uh, later in our discussion. Um, yeah, I can also uh, say that in terms of uh, in terms of uh, working with siblings, I th- I think it's a great approach because it avoids some of the difficulties it, that we have with simulation. So I think the genomes of the simulated embryos that that we generate on the computer, I, I think they are pretty realistic. But the problem is we still have to rely on a model for the risk given the polygenic score. And by working with um, actual siblings from the UK Biobank or other data sets, this problem is avoided. So it's a lot more realistic. The problem is working with siblings, it's more difficult to find out what happens with more than two siblings. So maybe I'll just take the opportunity to tell about um, our previous study where we looked at screening embryos for height, where we did a similar experiment, but uh, we had a really unique and interesting uh, data set we had about um, a data set of about 400 Ashkenazi Jews from families, from very large nuclear families, families that uh, in these families we had both parents, and the number of children was anywhere between 3 and 20. The average number of children per family was uh, 10. And, and they were all adults, so we knew they were... Are these orthodox? 
these Orthodox families. Yes, are. exactly. They were they were Jewish uh, Orthodox indeed. So we, and these uh, this community in this community typically there are very large uh, families, and um, and th- that was quite nice because we could uh, study empirically what what happens if you select the you know the embryo. Uh, I mean, it's not really an embryo. It's like it's it's the child. It was a you know, thought experiment. What if these children were embryo? I mean, it's the same thought experiment as you did with the UK Biobank, but we could go uh, into very large numbers of children. But we only had height. It was only a study of height, uh, unfortunately. I, I wasn't aware of that. So I, thanks for bringing that up. So I'm curious, first of all, the, the height predictor, if it's trained on sort of a general European population, do, what, do you know what the fall off in... Uh, variance accounted for or correlation is when you use it on Ashkenazi Jews? So not too, it's not too bad. I mean, from all of our experiments in uh, working with polygenic risk scores or polygenic scores in general in Ashkenazi population, performance is quite similar to the European population. Actually, recently, just a month ago, we published a paper. I was a minor author on that paper. It was uh, led by uh, Florian Privet from, and uh, Bjarni Willemson from uh, Aros. They uh, looked at the UK Biobank and studied the transferability of uh, or the relative performance of polygenic uh, scores across populations from within the UK Biobank. So there is no, uh, there isn't a problem of uh, using different uh, different arrays. Uh, arrays, exactly genotyping platforms and uh, and so on. And we found that so relative to Europeans in the Ashkenazi population, uh, the performance of the polygenic scores is 85%. So there is like a 15 percentage point decline in the performance of the scores, which is not too large. So th- these scores work pretty well. Even the schizophrenia study in the newer paper on, on diseases is uh, also from the Ashkenazi population and performance was uh, quite good. Yes, that's great. So so th- this large family idea is excellent because I, I often find people have the wrong intuition about how much variance is present in, amongst their children. So some people think there's no variance uh, among children, which is very strange, right? Because uh, I remember in high school, you know, there were families where one brother was, you know, six inches taller. My, that's a little bit rare, but, but you know, four or five inches taller than the other brother. And so it immediately tells you, or one was a really good student and one had a lot of trouble at school. So intuitively, I think if you're a careful observer, you know that within a family, the kids can really differ, or if you're a parent, even the kids can differ a lot. But uh, I think obviously you can quantify this, right? So it's sort of half the variance in the one sips as in the general. Yes, I mean, I, I agree that it's not it's not obvious intuitively. I mean, maybe even you know, if you had asked me like five years ago or ten years ago what should be the variance within the population, then I wouldn't have guessed uh, half. But but it's a classic uh, result in quantitative genetics that variance within siblings is half the variance uh, in the population. And I think this is, you know, relating to the statement by the European Society of Human Genetics. I mean, that was, I think, one of the main issues where I had a disagreement there. But it's kind of uh, typical to a lot of the criticism that I've heard about polygenic embryo screening. So, so I mean, a lot of criticism is, you know, maybe justified and worth, or at least worth uh, discussing. But that point, I think, is just, um, I mean, you just have to be familiar with this uh, a mathematical results and the claim that there is not enough uh, variance, I think, is uh, a, a, simply it does not hold. Uh, that said, the fact that there is uh, half the variance, as we showed in that uh, previous paper on traits, it, it doesn't mean the gains are going to be particularly high. 
For example, in that paper, we showed that, that for IQ, in that paper, we even uh, talked about selecting out of 10 embryos, the gain, the average gain in IQ was only around two points or three IQ points, which is, uh, I think every, almost everyone will agree is not, uh, is very little. But for diseases, it turns out that, that the larger, the impact can be qu quite large. Yeah, I should point out that our company only does health-related risks. We don't do uh, IQ or anything like that, or height. So you mentioned this ESHG, so that's European Society of Human Genetics. And, and they wrote a viewpoint, I guess, which was kind of negative about embryo screening. And I guess my attitude is like yours. If, if somebody has a valid scientific point, then I want to understand it as much as I can. I have a responsibility to understand it as much as I can and discuss it with them. But then if they have some argument like, oh, there's no variance among SIBs, uh, that's why this is not even worthwhile doing, it seems kind of wrongheaded. And you wrote a very nice, I think it was kind of like a one-pager that you put on Twitter, which really dissected their statement. And I, I think I agreed with you on every single point. Now, to me, the really valid issues that they raise, obviously, are things like, well, we don't have the predictors, as we were just discussing, they work best in the populations where we have the most training data. And the more distant you are from those, say, European populations, the less well the predictors work. That's the current situation. And that's a problem the whole field has to fix, not just uh, anybody involved in IVF or embryo testing. And the other issue, I think, is that there has to be a, I think you said this as well, there has to be a big society-wide discussion of how this should be regulated, what should be allowed, what should not be allowed. Of course, it should be based on the best science, right? So it shouldn't be people who aren't familiar with all the recent research giving their opinion. It should be uh, an informed opinion. Correct. So, I mean, there was some criticism that uh, that uh, I agreed with. And uh, and we also raised some of the points in, in the comment that I wrote with colleagues, uh, bioethicist colleagues. But yes, I mean, some data is out there on the expected outcome, so uh, no reason, uh, no no reason not to use it. And and of course, I mean, I, th I think everyone is aware about the everyone is aware uh, of the issue with with the lower performance in non-European in populations or you know individuals with non-European ancestry. Uh, I think there is another issue with unmixed individuals that I think was not mentioned or was not discussed enough. I think I I hope. In that in our group we'll study it in the near future, and uh, maybe it's a good opportunity to mention this, is that what happens if we have an unmixed uh, individuals, like like if the couple, if one or both individuals of the couple are unmixed, and uh, for example, African-Americans or uh, Hispanic uh, in the context of the United States, then the problem is that what happens is that the embryos will vary in the proportion of European ancestry that they have because individuals themselves, they will have ancestry partly European and partly other, and for example, African. And then because of the randomness of meiosis, so-called Mendelian segregation, some embryos will have more European ancestry than others. And then the problem with polygenic scores, actually there are two problems associated with non-European populations. One is lower predictive accuracy. And the other is bias. So the polygenic risk scores at least tend to be lower, reflect lower risk uh, in European populations. And if we are going to be selecting the, an embryo based on, the, based on having 
uh, the lowest polygenic risk scores, what may happen is that we, we may simply be selecting for more European ancestry. And this has the obvious uh, social problem, but uh, also it means the risk reduction that may be achieved may not be as high as we expect in, in Europeans. That's a bit more subtle, I would say, problem with implementing polygenic embryo screening in, a, in the context of admixed individuals, but I think it's worth thinking about as well. Yeah, I think it's a very serious problem. And I think one of the interesting ideas that we've discussed is if you can do block by block haplo-block by haplo-block identification of, you know, which, which ancestry group that chunk of DNA came from, then you might apply a specific predictor. So the, the, you know, one trained in Africans on certain sub-blocks and then one trained on Europeans on certain other sub-blocks and get some kind of aggregate score. But of course, this requires a lot of research to really be able to do it. I think another thing that, I guess this is a broader issue, but one of the things that I think the ESHG letter or viewpoint said was that there's no way to know whether any of this, maybe I hope I'm not uh, straw manning there, what they said, but it seemed like they said, you can't know whether anything of this, any of this ever works until lots of these babies grow up. And, you know, you decide, did the polygenic risk really correspond to the actual risk for that set of kids? That seems like a very unrealistically high standard. And I'm curious what, what you think about that. I think you commented on that. Right. Yeah. So, so I think they are aware that it's infeasible to do these experiments. So, so let me just reiterate what they were saying. They, they were saying that if we have this possible intervention uh, of uh, prioritizing the embryos uh, based on polygenic scores and then transferring based on these scores, if you want to do this intervention and show that it has health benefits, we need to do, let's say, a randomized clinical trial where we would, you know, randomize some couples to select by select embryos by. Uh, polygenic scores and, and others to select embryos at random or based on uh, morphology and so on. And then wait you know, a few decades until there are health outcomes and then see if this method uh, worked to reduce the disease burden. So what they said is that it would be impossible or irresponsible to use polygenic embryo screening before such uh, trials are conducted. So I think they are well aware that it is impossible to to conduct such a trials, I don't think they seriously suggested to to do them. But I think their point was that it would be because it would be impossible to to run such trials. It should be we should be careful. I don't know if you know then, but we should be very careful with using polygene scores with with embryos. But I think that we have the tool of statistics, and we can develop models or or you know even simulations like based on the UK Biobank as you did. And I think these tools can give us uh, reasonable estimates regarding what we expect. And I think what is um, important is not, not the result of one specific model, one or another model, or one or another paper, but the triangulation of evidence. If we have evidence coming from multiple methods, uh, multiple approaches, distinct approaches, or, and distinct groups that, that, shows, uh, that show similar results, then I think we you know, we can have, we can trust these results to some extent, at least, you know, get started with implementing this, you know, this screening by polygenic scores. Now, the the analogy that pops into my head, well, I guess there are two. One is that we already do, or it is fairly common to do Mendelian screening against uh, rare Mendelian variants. And sometimes in those cases also, it's not fully understood any kind of causal 
biological mechanism by how the mutation is actually causing the disease, but it's just a statistical association between the presence of that variant and, and later development of the disease. Yeah. Um, but I would say that, that for most, um, I think the difference is that for most um, Mendelian um, mutations, I think, I think for most of them, we, we understand the, the cause, or at least the evidence is um, overwhelming. I mean, it's, I find it difficult to find I mean, how many diseases we have for which we don't understand the, the biology of how the mutation uh, causes the disease. Okay, I, I, it's, I'm not an expert on this, but to me, it sounds like, I guess, being kind of skeptical always about biomedicine a little bit is that sometimes I go to a talk and they're explaining to me what the mechanism is and it looks like they just draw a cartoon and then really they're secretly, they're appealing to the statistics to justify their belief in this, the, the mechanism sometimes, I mean, obviously if they have some intervention or some really very, uh, definitive biochemical, uh, tests that can support the hypothesis. Sometimes it seems like they're confident, but they should maybe sh the main source of the confidence to me seems like it's statistical data. Yeah. I mean, in, in some cases, yeah, I, I don't know enough to, you know, to say how widespread, uh, this is, but, but, but I think it's not, um, at least in my opinion, I don't think the fact that, that we only have uh, statistical evaluations of, uh, of the expected outcomes, I don't think it should. I'm not saying we should approve the, uh, the technology because of uh, one statistical evaluation or another, but I think we should definitely consider. I mean, simply because we cannot wait for trials. I mean, this is clear, I think, for, for everyone. that it, it is impractical to, to do these trials and to wait for the, for the outcome. So we will have to decide whether it should be approved or not based on what we have uh, right now, based on the tools that we have right now. Right. And, and again, I, I think it's not that different from, you know, when the FDA has to approve a particular drug. When I look at the analysis, I was, uh, some years ago, my doctor, I had a high cholesterol readout, which was anomalous, but he immediately said I should start taking statins. So I started looking into statins and at the time that the, the data supporting the efficacy of statins seemed pretty weak to me, but it had been approved. It was a, you know already starting to be a billion dollar business or something. <laughs> and at this this Alzheimer's drug, I think it's called Aduhelm, that also seems to have been approved on fairly weak statistical data. So I, I feel like the the evidence in our papers is much stronger than that. It seems like to me, but I, I'd like to hear your opinion. I don't think I know enough to <laughs> you know to give a confident assessment of these uh, other drugs, but I think. You know, particularly not on you know Alzheimer's drug. The one difference is that uh, for these drugs, or you know, in general, let's talk generally, not about one drug or another. In general, for drugs, there have to be uh, clinical, like randomized uh, clinical trials. So you measure the efficacy. You know, you you eventually you have to run a statistical test, and uh, you know to get a p-value. But but you but you have outcomes from people who are treated compared to people who are not treated, and this is something that uh, we will not have for polygenic embryo screening in the, you know, not in the near future and also not in the distant future. And I think that's, in my opinion, that's a big difference. But whether that's a, you know, difference big enough to justify banning uh, polygenic embryo screening just based on that, probably not, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that is a fundamental distinction. I guess when I was comparing to these other sort of tests of uh, statistical tests for drugs, I was thinking about the delicacy of the statistical analysis and how, you know, you, you have to make some assumptions in the analysis. And for the 
not, again, not to get into a specific one, but I looked into this because I was interested. The Alzheimer's one, Adjuhelm, you know, there's negative risk too. If you take the drug, there's some bad things that can happen to you. And so you have to trust their analysis to decide the net utility is positive for people taking this drug. So that's right. So you have some. to, yeah. I mean, I agree. Sometimes the statistics can become uh, tricky. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you have cases like the COVID vaccines, for example, <laughs> where you don't really need yeah. statistics to <laughs> see, right. see that effect, right? Right. Now, an- another criticism often uh, against this kind of thing, against uh, embryo selection, comes from something called pleiotropy. And I don't recall where the ESHG viewpoint mentioned pleiotropy, but, you know, we looked at this pretty carefully and it as far as we can tell for the, for the major polygenic predictors, for the major diseases, there's actually fairly modest pleiotropy. And in fact, if you select on an index, so this is something that the doctors immediately demanded that there be some kind of general health index that they could use, because it's just simpler to think about for them and simpler for them to explain to patients. Then if you select on an index, generally there is, doesn't seem to be a, a zero sum thing going on that you can actually improve, you can lower risks across a bunch of different risks. And this seems to be supported by other people who independently are studying things like longevity and such that, that there, you can build a kind of polygenic longevity predictor. I'm curious what you think about this or if you've studied this at all. So, so we studied this question in both papers, in the 2019 paper on traits and the recent paper on diseases. In the 2019 paper on traits, we found that if selection is done for, uh, so it's a, it's a bit tricky. The, the gain per trait, it decreases with the number of traits that are, that are considered. So uh, what we showed in the paper that the gain that, that you have in the traits of the uh, future children decreases with the number of traits that you're selecting for, and it's inversely proportional to the square root of the number of traits. So if you're selecting for uh, four traits, the gain per traits will be only half what you get had you selected for only one trait. Um, so, you know, and if you're selecting for 16 traits, you will get only a quarter of the, of the gain. But on, on the other end, you're going to be getting gains for more traits. So like the net benefit is uh, positive. So, so you, will, you will gain more by selecting for more traits and uh, I assume for more, for more diseases, but again, per each individual trait or individual disease is going to be is going to be smaller, right. um, which I think once you think about it, once you think of it, I think it's uh, also intuitively clear that this is what should happen. Um, so the thing is with diseases, I, I never studied it myself, but from what I've seen, I mean, there is correlation between diseases, genetic correlation between diseases. But the thing is that usually this correlation is positive. Usually, it's not very uh, strong. I mean, of course, except for diseases in the same very similar diseases like uh, schizophrenia and bipolar disorders, of course, there is very high genetic correlation. But, but in general, if you, you know, across uh, all domains of, of medicine, the correlation is usually not large and it's uh, positive. So if you are reducing the risk of one disease, you will be reducing the risk of another disease. So I tend to agree that once there is like an index of like a health index uh, of some sort, either based on longevity or based on a combination of diseases, it should probably reduce the risk of most diseases simultaneously. Uh, although, as I said before, the risk reduction is going to be much smaller than like the 50, 40, 50% that I mentioned earlier when you're selecting for a single disease. But I think what you know uh, we have to be careful about is specific pairs of diseases 
that, that have very strong anti-correlation because this can happen sometimes. It's not very common, but if uh, a couple is about to select for one specific disease that has high anti-correlation, you know, strong negative correlation with another disease, then this should be taken into account because our results from the 2021 paper showed that this can, can increase quite substantially the risk of the correlated disease. So I would say, like to summarize broadly, I don't think, it's, I don't think it should be a major concern, again, because of the mostly positive correlation, positive genetic correlation between diseases. But I think this is something that everyone should, should have in mind you know, for, for some specialized cases. That that was a very nice summary. So, you know, if you if you just assumed uncorrelated risks across the different diseases, then this one over square root of n, you know, an n scaling that I think that you gave is is very plausible, right? It's what you would guess. And if you look at net consequence, you have sort of n gains and one over root n reduction. So you get root n gains. And then I, I think as a kind of caricature this, we find the same thing that, you know, generally what you find is weakly positive correlations. And so weakly positive actually helps you. So you get, I think roughly, very roughly, like the way a physicist would say it is you're going to do a little bit better than root N gains. Yes. And uh, right. Yeah. Right. But, but again, you have to be careful about specific, uh, specific cases, like specific uh, types of diseases that can have very strongly negatively correlated other diseases. Yes. The way I think I can describe the way that often the clinics and the parents are using these reports that we generate is that the doctor, honestly, this is maybe a flaw in the American system because the doctors are always, you know, unfortunately they have kind of a, a motive where they're just trying to do things as simply and quickly as they can. Generally, they like kind of having a overall health score. But then the parents, especially if they have a family history or something, they're looking specifically at a line item risk. Like, okay, I understand the overall ranking using an index, but then I, I want to see like what is going on specifically with heart attack because a lot of people in my family, you know, had heart attacks or something. So that seems like a reasonably rational way for people to use this information. It doesn't seem like people are having trouble uh, making use of it. Yeah. Although I would be, I mean, I would be careful in that case about, I mean, in that setting, about the expected relative risk reductions if the identity of the embryo of the selected embryo is eventually not the one with the lowest or highest health index maybe it could change the calculations to some degree i don't know yeah it's very yeah. subtle i mean the the genetic counselors that we train takes a while for them to explain you know rr triple r and arr mm -hmm. to the patients but the, yeah. it's it's the real focus of trying to give them a clear picture of what what the information says yeah, I mean, your your experience would be very interesting. Uh, I mean, I assume you will be you will publish it, uh, you know, at some point, uh, all the data that you have on the patient experience. But 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 it, these are indeed the kinds of concerns that that we raise. That you know, maybe negative sides with with polygenic embryo screening, like the we referred in some places to choice overload, just having you know too many too much information to to comprehend. And just having to to select out of a few embryos may may make it difficult for parents, and uh, also difficulties in explaining the probabilities because the the risk is probabilistic; it's not deterministic as as the case of you know cystic fibrosis or similar diseases, and um, and also explaining the distinction between relative risk reduction and uh, absolute risk reduction. I think all the all these points are 
there are causes of concern, you know, in the greater reproductive medicine community about this technology and, you know, any data that you have on this, uh, I think would be very welcome by, you know, by everyone studying this. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, I, I agree completely on the importance of these issues and, uh, I'm pretty sure the company will publish, uh, some results on all this stuff. I'm more involved just on the really in the weeds computational stuff, not that sort of thing. I probably wouldn't even be a co-author on that paper, but I'm pretty sure they will. This is Steve adding some information in after editing. I checked with my colleagues on Shai's question about follow-up studies of our patients. Genomic Prediction is preparing more than one paper on this kind of data from patients consenting to participate in research, which is most of them. The studies explore patient experiences and attitudes toward polygenic screening and gather not only longitudinal health outcome data, but also the psychological outcomes of screening whether the patient found PGTP useful, whether it induced anxiety, relief, or regret. Also, whether reducing risk of mental health disorders in their family gave them courage to have children. Also, whether their family and friends approved or whether the patient elected to keep the testing a secret from their peers or even from their own child. Or whether they decided not to receive PGTP results at all, and if so, why not? So far, more than half said yes, when PGTP results were offered. All very interesting stuff, which the company looks forward to publishing. Some of it has already been presented at an IVF science conference called ASRM, American Society of Reproductive Medicine, last year. You can find more information about the study designs at lifeview.com, which is our website, and also on the public pre-registration of the studies at clinicaltrials.gov. They have all been IRB approved and submitted before initiation in accordance with best scientific practices. Thanks. I wanted to switch. Okay. Well, there are two, we're, well, I, we're almost at it. We're at an hour now. Sorry. And, and, uh, there are two more things I want to discuss. If you can just give me them, maybe another 10 minutes that, that would be sure. great. Okay. So one is genetic genealogy and solving crimes, because you wrote one of the early papers on this, which I, I think I, at the time I read and, and was uh, influential in my thinking, because I had been making kind of back of the envelope estimates, uh, which were similar to, with conclusions similar to what you got. And then the other thing I wanted to discuss was the Israeli health system and whether you think there's a good chance that polygenic scores for adults might make an appearance in, I think it's a single payer system. Is that, is that right? Uh, uh, I'll explain once we get there. Okay. Okay. So, so let's, let's do five minutes on five or 10 minutes on genetic genealogy and then however much time you can spare on healthcare. So uh, this other company I'm involved in called Othram now is, I think the CEO tells me solving several really prominent cold cases a week. So it's like, oh, well, you know, these okay. are, these are like cases that have been outstanding for, you know, on time scale of decade or maybe sometimes multiple decades. And, you know, they're able to, I think they've solved cases with as little as 15 cells equivalent of DNA. And so they're getting really good at dealing with contaminated, messy DNA and crime scenes and getting a fair amount of case volume from police departments, FBI, stuff like that. So, so it's a, it's a real thing. I think it will change law enforcement quite a bit. And again, I want to give you credit and I forgot your collaborator's name. He's a computer scientist at Columbia. Yeah. So, um, 
So the, the person who led this, that, that paper in 2018 is uh, Yaniv Ehrlich? Yes, yeah. Yaniv. So I, I, yeah. I, I heard him give his talk at ASHG, I think it might have been 2018 or 2019. Right, 2018, just after we published the paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he was at Columbia, in the same department where I was in computer science. And then in 2017, uh, uh, he moved uh, back to Israel and he was the uh, CSO of uh, MyHeritage. And I, I'm a consultant at MyHeritage, as I mentioned. So we worked together on this paper. It was mostly led by, uh, by Aniv. And we also used data by MyHeritage to uh, generate those projections for the ability to identify uh, at least Americans ba based on their DNA and this uh, genetic genealogy uh, approach. Right. So I, as I was saying, I, I saw this as, a, as an opportunity to solve crimes and do things. And I was making much simpler estimates. And so when your paper came out, I was like, wow, this is great. And so I think one result you had was, yeah. let's see. I will also mention the paper by uh, Doc Edge and Graham Coop. They, they also uh, generated some estimates of the, uh, the expected number of people that we will be able to identify using this method. Uh, yes. It comes in parallel to, to us. Yeah. Right. Also reaching similar uh, conclusions. So I think roughly speaking, you were saying if you have roughly a million people in your data set, and let's say we're just talking about Europeans, I think you said 60% chance of finding like a third cousin match. Is that? Yeah, is that, that, that was uh, about, yeah, those were about yeah. the numbers. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's all very sensitive to like, you know, modeling assumptions, but, but that's the order of magnitude. Once the databases become large enough to have, uh, you know, 1%, 2% of the population, then it, it becomes highly probable that everyone will have a relative, at least a third cousin or closer in the database. Yep. Now, it, there's been a whole evolution where a lot of the initial data used for this came from kind of uh, enthusiast, genealogy enthusiast websites where people had uploaded their genomes. And then there was some controversy about whether some people were willing to allow their data to be used to catch criminals, et cetera. And so mm -hmm. the whole thing has evolved in a kind of complicated yes. way. And, and now very awesome. rapidly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's quite and amazing I, how fast things uh, developed. Yeah. Incredible. And, and actually at the science level, it's under the, the results, like Othram knows a lot now about sort of the corrections to the first order kind of analysis that you and Graham and these other guys did because they, they see much more population structure, right? And population structure, even among people that are more likely to commit crimes or, you know, there's a bunch of science that they could do if they were not so busy building the company, they could publish a bunch of papers on this kind of thing. But I'm curious what you think will happen. So one of the hypotheses I had at the very beginning, when I was talking to venture capitalists and looking for a CEO to run the company and saying, we, sh we should really start a company to do this. I thought that there would eventually be legal challenges that would just force ancestry and 23andMe and my heritage to you know, allow their data to be searchable by law enforcement because a very similar thing happened at the beginning of the internet where the police would always want to go to an ISP or some email, free email provider and say, hey, there's a crime being committed. We need to look at all these emails. And initially those companies resisted, but then the, the police got court orders and things. And now we've flipped completely to where all of those internet companies have compliance departments whose only job is to basically comply with law enforcement to, to, you know, dig up the data that uh, the FBI wants or something. So I'm, I'm wondering what you think will happen in the consumer DNA business in the long run regarding, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, let me first just uh, comment about like the, 
you know development like scientific development in, in the field very quickly I, I think that I think that you commented correctly that there were not too many developments at least on the on the question of like how to find the relative or how many relatives we, we expect to find I think most of the challenges come from uh, extracting DNA from uh, sometimes highly degraded uh, samples sometimes even almost ancient uh, samples It can be you know the decades old samples uh, sometimes there are mixtures and so all those complications and, and then sequence these uh, DNA samples to high quality uh, I think these are major challenges that are still not fully resolved and uh, I think there can be a lot of progress there that will make applying this method easier and I think that there are also challenges in um, in the genealogy part so once you have your second cousin of the of the criminal or the Or the victims sometimes these are unidentified victims once you have them once you have the se- once you have that second cousin it's not always easy to find the person you're looking for and I don't think there are like uh, I don't think it's like there's been like major development in methodology that would help a uh, genealogist to do this work I think it's still uh, kind of a lot of cumbersome manual work that has to be done um, but the question is like of how many relatives we will detect I don't think This would change too much. I think now that databases keep growing at some point it would be just everyone is going to be nearly everyone is going to be is going to have a relative so uh, so this question is going to have less uh, importance and uh, your question is about legal aspects uh, I'm less familiar with this, but I'm uh, also equally impressed as you that that there were no court orders. I think there was only one case. Um, if I remember correctly, but uh, by and large, uh, the companies that did not want to cooperate with the law enforcement uh, on this, they, they didn't do it. I mean, um, my heritage, again, where I'm consultant, uh, notably 23andMe and Ancestry, uh, that have the larger, largest uh, databases, they were very successful, very aggressive in, um, in protecting the privacy of their uh, consumers, but, but also not, co- you know, not, not helping uh, law enforcement. It's also a question what's the right thing to do uh, it's not obvious but but the, the decision of this company was to protect protect as as fiercely as they can the privacy of the of their users and uh, yeah it is uh, quite interesting that it it's uh, successful I mean it is not practiced in Israel this method for various reasons it's a bit complex I won't get into it uh, but in the us it's uh the forensic genetic genealogy is now uh, very widespread. Uh, but but I think I think the I think the law enforcement agencies they they now simply they just live with with what they what they are allowed to you know to to use I mean with uh, jet match and family tree DNA and uh, and they probably gave up uh, maybe there are some things happening behind the scenes that I'm not aware of but uh, yeah there, uh, but there, there just realized that they just want they just want to have that court order so they just uh, should not waste their time on it My description of what's happening in the US, I guess I have some special information, but I don't know how much of it I should share. But there is a lot going on in the background with proprietary data, building proprietary data sets. And the, the police are just happy because this is already, even in the current situation, a big quantum leap over what they could do years ago. The in, local incentive structure for the detectives and prosecutors is they're just trying to clear as many cases as they can. And For them to engage in some protracted legal struggle with, say, 23andMe, they don't have a good incentive for investing that much of their time and energy to do it. 
But it could happen easily if like some kind of politically ambitious district attorney or somebody wanted to really push it in, you know, maybe in some red state in the United States. Uh, so that's, that's the fluctuation that I'm waiting to see. I think that fluctuation will eventually happen. But right now, the police departments are just happy that they can clear a bunch of old cold cases, you know, that they had never had any hope of solving. I, I think also they have, um, I mean, I assume they don't solve every case using the genetic gene genealogy. They don't always find relatives, but even if they find relatives in half the cases they're studying, they probably, you know, have enough work to, you know, for, uh, for a few years uh, forward, you know, to keep them busy uh, working on those cases. That is exactly uh, right. Yes. Yeah. In, in particular, there are so many rape kits, for example, that, you know, from what I read, that are, that were not even uh, genotyped. You know, there, there's so much potential to use it, you know, to, to use this technology even before, you know, going to court with 23andMe. Yeah. The rape kit issue is a terrible one because, you know, there are many, many rape kits that have not been processed. And it's also true that a very small number of offenders are responsible for a lot of the rapes. So there's a kind of some, I don't know if it's a power law, but you'll, you'll like this from your earlier work, but, <laughs> but the, there's some kind of distribution where a relatively small number of people are responsible for a hugely disproportionate number of crimes. And so when, when you lock them up, it, it, it has very large kind of network effects or not network effects, but, but disproportionately good effects. Let, let me switch gears because, again, I'm conscious of the time and I don't want to keep you too long. So I'm curious about the Israeli healthcare system. And I, I just have the feeling that, uh, well, I guess maybe at the crudest level, people are smart in Israel. So I'm wondering if, if, you'll, if it's possible they'll be the first to start using PRS constructively for adult healthcare. Okay. So briefly, the, the Israeli system is, so there is universal healthcare. But it's not. There's no single provider or insurer. There are four providers for HMOs. The largest is the, called the Klalit. It uh, insures about half the population, and they recently became very famous after they published uh, several papers on the COVID vaccine because uh, they they have really really good high quality longitudinal electronic healthcare data spanning almost 30 years. I I think they also have a really good uh, research institution. Uh, and then there is another provider called Maccabi, which covers about a quarter of the population. And then there are two smaller uh, providers. But everyone must be, every person in Israel, every citizen must be a member of one of these uh, HMOs. So regarding polygenic risk scores, they are not being implemented clinically right now anywhere uh, in Israel. As I mentioned um, uh, earlier in this conversation, only very recently, we have uh, good data on the predictive power of uh, uh, polygenic scores in the Ashkenazi population, and we know that the polygenic scores work pretty well. Not, not you know, exactly the same accuracy as in Europeans, but almost uh, there. So we know that they should work well in Israel. Regarding the other populations of Israel, we, we know very little, if, if at all. Uh, I mean, I did like a very, very small study of 100 people from an Arab village studying LDL cholesterol, and that's it pretty much, I think. Uh, so there is a lot of, uh, we, we don't know enough about uh, how well polygenic scores are going to work. And we also don't know enough about the attitudes of people uh, towards uh, using polygenic scores uh, clinically. And I'm trying to run a few, uh, at the moment, a few small studies uh, in the uh, context of uh, cardiology and uh, oncology to just take a sample of cases and controls from clinics in Israel and compare polygenic risk scores. And, you know, so we know it should work in Ashkenazi Jews. Um, that, you know, we should validate that first and then see how it works on the other, 
you know, in the other populations, particularly the non-Jewish population. So uh, we have this uh, missing data. What we what we do have, which I hope will uh, take off, you know, in the near future, is a large uh, national project to set up a biobank of or you know a study of hundred thousand Israelis, uh, along with their genomes and their uh, clinical records. And uh, this project it has a lot of funding uh, secured from the government, but it ran into some uh, barriers and technical and legal problems uh, throughout the past few years. Now there is new management and I would say uh, more excitement about, about it and and things are starting to to move on and I, I hope that uh, this momentum will continue and then we will have a really large resource of uh, genomic data from Israel and then of course with these amazing longitudinal uh, medical records that we have in Israel associated with uh, that we will have associated with these genomes I think it will be very easy to study the utility of uh, polygenic scores. And then I think there will be, I think there will be openness to try polygenic scores in the in the clinic. I think it will be important to uh, have uh, some preliminary cost effectiveness analysis or preliminary trials. But from conversations that I've had with clinicians, maybe it's a, you know a biased <laughs> biased sample of clinicians, but I think they have uh, excitement about uh, the ability of of uh, polygenic scores to identify individuals of. Uh, a very high risk, but I mean at the same time we have to we have to realize that the sensitivity is very low. I think uh, it's a uh, you know we know that from many studies that were published, including uh, studies um, you know on 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 embryos. Uh, we know that uh, just uh, just uh, identifying individuals at very high risk is uh, going to find only a small proportion of the of the cases, and even the positive predictive value is going to be. You know, it's not, it's not going to be very large, so we have to have that in mind. And but still, it could be another uh, another tool, uh, another way to um, to stratify individuals by risk, and you know maybe give them better treatment. So it's it's early to say whether you know we will have it implemented at scale in Israel, but but I think there is a definitely willingness to to try it out and see you know how it works. It sounds like Israel could be, uh, the other two that I think are promising are Estonia, weirdly, and Finland, because they're relatively small countries and they have good medical records and, uh, you know, already some biobanking going on. Yeah, but, but um, they are a few years ahead of Israel, unfortunately, see. See. Uh, in terms of like setting up the biobank. We are just, I mean, again, like we, there is funding for, you know, the funding was secured already a few years ago, but uh, there were several problems that... Uh, Slow down, if not, you know, stopped altogether the the uh, this project, and uh, and only now we're studying more seriously. I mean, this is a project of the Ministry of Health. I'm a, a consultant there, uh, you know, trying to help with experience on uh, you know population genetics of Israel and so on. You know, I uh, the example that stood out for me was breast cancer because people are already very familiar with BRCA, and the polygenic risk, you know, can be as large for fairly large chunk of women in the population compared to BRCA carriers. And so when you, you do very crude estimates of how much money you save by identifying, it's, it's about an order of magnitude larger, the, the set of women who are as high risk as BRCA carriers, but only for polygenic reasons. And it looks like you can pay for, if you just take the cost savings that other people have published in other studies from early detection or early diagnosis. It looks like you can pay for genotyping all the women in a population just by 
breast cancer. So yeah, and also genotyping is so cheap now that it's uh it's almost uh, I mean it's I, I don't think it's a major consideration anymore. Like the cost of uh, genotyping, I mean it's uh, yep. can be under forty dollars now, and uh, you know if you do it at, uh, at scale, it's uh, even less. Uh, and also, if you genotype, you just need to genotype once for all diseases. So I don't think this is going to be the major consideration, but it's going to it's going to take uh, a lot of effort and additional infrastructure and clinician time and so on to you know to actually do the testing and uh, interp- interpret the results and uh, provide genetic counseling and all that. And, and these I think these costs cost, I think are going to be just much much uh, higher than the cost of genotyping. And this is where you know, it may end up uh, not cost-effective, but uh, but I think we can also learn, you know, to do it uh, efficiently. You know, if uh, you know, if if we are convinced that the scores are sufficiently accurate. Yeah, if you could convince the AMO, that, the HMO, that they'll actually save money, then uh, maybe, yeah, but, maybe that'll <laughs> that always helps. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your time. I we, we went. Uh, it's now a minute, uh, an hour and twenty minutes. So I apologize for taking up so much of your time, no, but I really enjoyed. My pleasure. Yeah. The conversation yet yeah. I, I would love to come back at, and talk to you about uh ashkenazi uh the kind of um uh, history a uh, genetic history um you know the d- one thing i wanted to ask you before we go is for sephardic jews do you have similar results for the effectiveness of uh european trained predictors and things like that yeah um, so so first of all i would emphasize that um what some people in israel call sephardic jews i mean they're, they're really we have uh North African Jews uh, and, and Sephardic Jews, meaning Spanish Jews, and then we have uh, Middle Eastern Jews, mostly from Iran and Iraq. Um, and there is uh, a, so, so we know from genetic studies, from population genetic studies, we know that uh, uh, North African Jews are genetic, genetically relatively similar to Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews. They are distinct, but, but you know, qu- quite close. So if I would have to guess, I would I would guess that the accuracy of polygenic scores will be somewhat lower, but not too much lower. But regarding Middle Eastern Jews, I, I think, I mean, it's really, uh, there, there's no data, and uh, they are more uh, genetically distinct from from the other uh, Jewish communities. You know, we really, we don't have a good clue. I mean, like, there is, the only Middle Eastern data at scale that we have is uh, coming from Qatar. Actually, just like a couple of days ago, they, they had a paper out on polygenic scores for cancer, but they didn't have enough cases to actually uh, determine the the accuracy of the score. So so really, there is no data from the Middle East on the accuracy of polygenic scores. That's a that's a pretty big gap in the literature mm-hmm. in, in this area. Great. Well, I, I couldn't resist slipping in that last question. <laughs> uh, Shai, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I'm really uh, happy to do uh, happy that we did this, and I, I would love to have you back again if you have some more time. Yeah, when I maybe when I have uh, you know new paper new papers out, <laughs> and we have some yeah we have more to discuss. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was uh, fun. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me. <laughs> <laughs>